Prepare yourselves. Come on in. Welcome to paradise. This is the PowerShell Podcast. PowerShell Podcast. For anybody who fools around with this is playing with dynamite. It's all about PowerShell and the PowerShell community. Yes! That's awesome! And now, here's your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. Hey everybody, welcome back to the PowerShell Podcast. I'm co-host Jordan Hammond with other additional also co-host as well, Andrew Plaw. And today we are joined by special guests. Do you prefer Chris or Kristoff? Well, both is fine. Chris is short. Uh, hello, everyone. Right. Hello. So it's uh, Chris Bergmeister who's here to talk about a lot of things. Uh, you got more of a, a developer background, so we get to kind of hear the, the yeah, that, yeah, that side of, of, of approach, which I'm kind of excited for. Yeah. So yeah, my career actually started out as a developer. I was a .NET developer, and we had a project where we had to revamp everything and rewrite some of it from scratch. And part of that included writing CI/CD pipelines using a new platform. So I was like, well, what's going to be the tool? It's going to be PowerShell. We had some of it already. And this is kind of how it started off. Um, it's just such a natural language. Um, very intuitive, quickly gets the job done. Um, and then I started going more and more into it. Um, this was the time when Microsoft started open sourcing.net. And at the same point in time, maybe just a year or two later, they did that for PowerShell. And it was actually very related to a project at my company, um, just because they were building things that had to run cross-platform. So... This is how I slowly got more and more into PowerShell, not just writing scripts for CICD, but also using PowerShell Core. At the time, I remember it was, I think, Alpha 12, the first version that I used of the core version. It, it was pretty rough at the time, um, but it was pretty cool um, running those things in Linux. And with the developer background, I started to like tinker and have a look and think, well, what could the change in PowerShell now that it's open source? Um, so it's hard to see really where the path started to change from a developer to more of a DevOps person to more of a platform engineer that I'm nowadays working with infrastructure and Azure. I would say it was gradual and smooth. There were maybe two things that were maybe parallels, PowerShell and script analyzer. Script analyzer, because well, I was writing PowerShell code, um, wanted to get more warnings, wanted to get more out of it. And PowerShell, just because I was naturally a fanboy, um, and because PowerShell is written in .NET, it's like, well, I've got actually all the tools to make changes to it. Um, so I started having a look at what kind of up for grabs issues did they have. Um, I remember my very first pull request got 60, 70 comments. Didn't get merged in the end because um, they had to make some more work on a .NET API that wasn't available at the time. But this is really how I got my foot into it. Um, um, started attending meetups from the PowerShell community. Um, yeah, it was uh, all a time of change. Um, Docker became very popular at the time as well. So attended other meetups and just generally at this point started to discover there's a community out there because I was quite early on in my career. I didn't even think that much that there was this network of professionals between companies. 
I also had the impression, yeah, you work in a company, you've got your colleagues, because everything is in-house. If you talk with someone else, it would be hard for them to help you because they don't know the details of the software you're working on. But actually, tech stack actually is shared, and sometimes there's like common themes that go around um, that maybe wasn't realizing at the time because I was a bit junior as well and just learning really. And as as we all know, once you've been in IT for a few years, things might be labeled under different names, but sometimes the story is actually the same and you're just doing something slightly different. Um, but yeah, this is kind of where I started out um, with both PowerShell and PS Script Analyzer. And I still like PS Script Analyzer because it's a .NET uh, module, meaning I can still keep my skills up to date, do some proper coding, because nowadays it's more like high level, um, not just even scripting aspect, but also the architecture, because in the cloud you need to think about how we can wire things together, um, or general approaches around how we are leading the team or a delivery. So times have changed, but I'm still using PowerShell and I'm still hanging on to a script analyzer because it keeps me this hands-on experience that I'm still knowing what's going on in the ecosystem because it's it still applies to it. I'm working in a consultancy, so um, changing clients very often, but it's a repeated theme Every project I'm on to that uses a Microsoft-ish stack, they might not use .NET, but there's always PowerShell. And strangely enough, there's always seems to be things that needs to be fixing there or improving there. So it's something that could actually carry forward throughout my entire career. And it's still so useful to me, um, surprisingly. But I guess that's the power of PowerShell, really. That's awesome. That's quite the journey. Um, and I think you and I have met at Summit one year. Was that 2018 or 2019? It uh, was before the pandemic. I think it was 2019 because I think it was the last one before the pandemic. Yeah. So they talk around script analyzer at the time when they did the custom rules, I think. Mm -hmm. um, so this is my first and for the moment being last time at the Summit. Maybe next year. I think if you're doing it in person, I might consider it's a big trip over the pond. Um, but the conference was quite different to PSConf for you. It was big, but I guess different because um, a big part of the community is SUS focused. There are some folks there that are well known from Europe, but it's maybe a handful of people, I would say, five to 10. But US community is bigger. I just remember when I started out in PowerShell, names like Keith Hill were present in the community um, and other ones alike. And I don't think until I was digging deeper that I knew someone from the European side. I knew them from meetups later on, but it wasn't like this one figure that was like, oh yeah, I know this guy because I've seen him on Stack Overflow or on GitHub, etc." So I think it was for me an honor as well, like finally meeting the big people that I've been aspiring to when I started out really small in PowerShell. That's why I like the, the summit so much is you, you meet so many people that had a massive impact on your learning with PowerShell and they don't even realize how big it was just because they, you know, it's, it's what we're talking about. They, they write their blog, they put the information out there and it's, it's changed our lives. And you get there, you get to meet them in person and they don't even 
didn't even realize how big of an impact they've had. Yeah. Yeah. Looking back to my experience when I met you, that's kind of like what it was for me. Um, you know, all the PowerShell script analyzer, just the fact that you were working on that, in my mind, you were really pushing the limits of, of what I thought was kind of even possible. Um, and I just remember always every interaction we've had, you've always been very friendly and kind. Um, so it's really cool to kind of hear about your journey. Um, when did the Microsoft MVP thing start happening for you? Um, so this year I got the fifth award. So if we go back in time, that's 2017. Um, so initially I started my contributions with PowerShell, as I mentioned, and they were just because I was a fanboy, I was interested. So yeah, I guess half a year later, as I got more engaged in the community, I started hearing people are MVPs and there was actually one MVP in my company as well. And he was a recent new MVP but in a different area, um, some area in Azure, I can't remember. So this is the first time I heard about this MVP thing. And I thought, well, it's interesting, but I guess it's a lot of work. Guidelines said, well, you have to at least show one year of contributions. So I was like, well, let's keep on doing what I like doing. But it wasn't with any kind of intention or target, really. And then I said in my company, when we did the annual review, well, I've done a year like on the side whilst I was doing my job doing all those open source things because um, I like doing that and I think there's potential for me to maybe try get an MVP. And then they said, oh, yeah, that's that's a great idea. Actually, how about you speak to the other person that is an MVP as well and he can maybe help you a bit like how you can like have the case. I remember at the time, um, I self-nominated. That's not possible anymore because rules were changed. Um, but then he strengthened the case as well because he looked at my case and then he put in a nomination as well. And what I didn't know at the time, because I was doing um, so many talks at the meetups in London, some of the other MVPs actually behind the scenes, they were already talking to the person um, that is managing those nominations. And... They were already discussing my nomination. Um, so it was, I found out about that only afterwards, um, but I think it was a nice and pleasant surprise. But that's the thing about MVP that so many people keep telling, like you don't want to become an MVP, you just happen to become one. It's just, it's a natural evolution. And then it gives you more motivation, of course, to keep doing what you're doing. Um, but I think it was a nice thing to have. and. It was a combination of both PowerShell and Script Analyzer, but I think at a time more PowerShell focused, I think. I don't remember the, power, the timeline exactly of Script Analyzer. I think in the last few months it started because I wanted to basically fix a lot of things in my code base and I didn't want to go through VS Code, click here and there, oh, you can auto fix that. So my very first pull request was the dash fix switch. Um, and I think that was around June time. And I think the MVP award came around July. So actually, I think Script Analyzer came afterwards, now thinking about it. But I guess it's all the community involvement um, and some of the changes in PowerShell that look back onto it. Like lots of people make changes to it. Um, but I guess they also look at like what is the business value of it. And there were quite a few fixes that to make in the Windows installer that prevented big disasters. So 
because of my developer background, I knew what working with Wix and MSI, which is the installer technology used for Windows predominantly. And because of my work experience, I was having a look at their code. And I saw basically code that would become incompatible if, were to, if they were to release a new version of it. Um, as before, they were spinning alphas and betas all the time. It was something that you would only realize once you first release. I think it was in version 6.0 at the time. I remember there were some last minute fixes where I helped them say, oh, look, look out, be careful. As far as I know, you shouldn't be doing this because this can prevent uh, problems in the future. Um, so I think that kind of aspect probably helped because I guess assuming that there were conversations in the background around some of those contributions, but I'm kind of suspecting it's actually, although there were, I don't know, 20, 50 PRs, it might've been just the one or two PRs that really gives it the edge when they compare different candidates, but the process by design is not very well known. Yeah. That sounds like a pretty impressive PR and a pretty awesome thing to catch. And I guess sort of one of the benefits of open source, right? Of having the ability for people like you to be able to look at the code base and say, hey, wait, something's not right here. Um, that is really cool and awesome to hear about. Yeah. Well, one thing I thought was interesting is you said the first pull request you put in ended up not getting implemented. Yeah. Which I mean it goes to show because instead of being you know discouraged or or be put off or anything like that, you just you kept going. And now I was looking through the repos you have shared that you've got PowerShell PowerShell itself, VS Code Analyzer, Pester, mm -hmm. uh, the documentation, the PowerShell docs are in there. So like you have your fingerprints all over critical yeah. components now. Yeah, because I work with PowerShell and I'm like, oh, this thing annoys me. I want to improve it. Like nowadays with docs, it's easy, you can hit the edit button. Some things in the VS Code extension were a bit tricky and technical, where you need that kind of developer background. And sometimes when I looked at some of those repos, it's not really clear how to get started, how to even build it. I remember when I started in Script Analyzer, I was relying on the build system a lot. I couldn't figure out for months how to run a test locally. <laughs> I had to literally self-discover. So I guess that's sometimes the pain if the repository isn't in that much of a great shape. And well, I think open source is still good, even if it sometimes limits the audience. At, at first it was, I guess, from their side, the MVP go live open source PowerShell, which was trim all the stuff that had IP that they couldn't have otherwise made open source. And then they started improving it. And, Nowadays, it's really at the point where it's very easy for both PowerShell as well as Script Analyzer for someone not as technical, go in there and try make a change, try build it themselves and test it out. Um, but it's, it's, it's come a long way. And like you say, the open source nature just allows people like me that want to tinker. I just want to see how, how it works. And then we, we might find something and fix it. It might be small. It might be big. Some people just have a drive-by PR and then you never see them again. And some people develop a uh, passion and that's kind of what happened with Script Analyzer, I suppose. I'm fascinated by the, the drive-by PR because that's clearly something that was bothering them so bad that they just <laughs> like, they, they have to go in and this one thing, and everything else is great. 
<laughs> yeah. Well, I think it could be that they're just they're used to kind of interacting with GitHub and issues and all that kind of thing, and they're just using something. Oh, I see uh, something wrong with it. Real quick, just going to create uh, an issue or a pull request for it real quick and keep moving. Um, which to me, it sounds like you have those skills and, and all that stuff is very comfortable for you. You do it regularly. So it's easy to kind of pick up a PR and start diving into it. And I think um, some of our audience is kind of in the process of learning maybe more about Git and interacting with Git more. And from my experience, I think that uh, a good way to get proficient with it is to just kind of use it regularly because it really helps ease the burden when you're experiencing something. Okay, you're a lot more comfortable opening an issue or you know, maybe even submitting a pull request and cloning things and all kinds of fun stuff. Yeah, yeah. It, it does bring back memories, like trying to use GitHub the first time because everyone starts small, really. They might have used a different system. Like, I'm starting to feel a bit old, but when I started out as a developer, we were using SVN. And I'm sure people will tell me even older systems. Um, and although technically I've used Git and GitHub before at university, it just for some reason didn't really stick with me, I guess, because it was just used internally. Um, but the way how I really started out was the open sourcing from the micro Microsoft around .NET, where we had to use the latest previews and things weren't working. And then GitHub was the new platform to go to before they had some su support forums or internal people coming in trying to help you if you want to use some of their bleeding edge software. But there was never a good platform to actually interact with engineers. And that changed with GitHub where you open an issue and you didn't get some support person in trying to map this high level thing to someone internally and then things got mistranslated. And it's, it's a lot of effort that sometimes discouraged you from opening issues because it was the whole effort and things could take take days getting it translated down and then you would wait on an engineer looking at your problem. GitHub, you submit an issue and at the time, because they were really on it, you sometimes got a response on the same day. They would tell you, oh, actually, yes, we're aware of this. Here is the PR we already have for it. Just watch this PR and you will have it in the next preview or, well, this is a known workaround. And they sometimes tell you a lot about the product that gives you really insight and value in understanding the product you're using, no matter what it is, if it's .NET or PowerShell. And I guess this was kind of what inspired me a bit as well of making contributions to PowerShell, because I thought, well, what better way if I change things there and getting an expert review, they could tell me what well, this is, how you can better script or make a better command let so. I guess that was a bit of a driver for me as well. I was just curious, really, um, seeing where do I stand up to, to the experts. Um, it's, it's a give and take. You provide free software or free contributions. In response, you get a free review. And I've actually grown quite a bit out of it. Sometimes... Um, it's just like the holistic way how they, they look at the PR and they don't look at like small things in the code, but they think about how is this going to impact us in the longer term? How are we covered in terms of testing or regressions? Because those are the things that no one really talks about too much. 
and it's this child that gets pushed into the corner and then only once the problem happens people bring it up and then it's this fix with the quickly bring in um and firefighting start starts to happen but of course then being microsoft they create code that is very generic so that software of a completely completely different quality rather than as a developer you write software that gets used in a very specific case you can disregard edge cases and you can just make blank statements oh this is a scenario that is not supported etc you know your audience um so it was kind of interesting as well to see that and it helped in the other scenarios as well when doing like non-generic development um because it makes you really think about development in a different way and that applies to powershell as well when we're developing our scripts what if something has to change and we're just adding a parameter no problem what if we have to refactor it big time how do we tell our previous consumers or do we just put the change out and see how they adapt I, I love highlighting how contributing to the community and open source is not this selfless endeavor where you're just giving, giving, giving. Um, you mentioned uh, your contributions kind of played a role in you getting a Microsoft MVP, which is quite uh, an impactful thing. Um, you also mentioned how uh, by creating the PRs, you're getting a free code review from someone who really knows what they're doing. And from what you've said, it's you've grown a lot from that process, which is really cool to hear. Um, I, I just love highlighting how doing things that help others are also beneficial to the person doing the helping. Um, I'll take any chance I can to highlight that. No, not definitely. It's, that's the magic of open source, really, where we're all in it together. We try to build something together. We're all using the tool where we're sharing it. Um, bring, brings the community together. And like you say as well, sometimes one party does more than the other. Um, but it's just generally how it always works in life. There's always one person that works more in a project and the other person is more of the passenger, but they both learn because they still have to go through the same journey. Um, so yeah, definitely recommend to anyone that is starting out. Like nowadays, it's a bit more streamlined and they've learned from some of the mistakes and have improved things. Um, but it's the Hacktoberfest that I think is starting soon again. Um, where all the repositories put up for grabs issues there. So always recommend for someone that wants to start out, have a look at this, start with something really small, see if there's something that you think is doable, as well as something that interests uh, you in making that change. Is it because you want to learn a new language? Um, for example, the PowerShell extension for VS Code is written in TypeScript. Um, it's the first time I learned TypeScript because um, I was more of a backend developer, so always kept working with the C-sharp languages, but not so much the front-end languages. And so I used that as an opportunity as well to actively try find myself something in the extension that required TypeScript work. Um, or like we said, the, the review um, or getting to know the tool as well and different frameworks. I remember many years ago, um, I did the pull request for Chocolatey and they were using kind of an interesting like mocking framework for their unit tests. It's just seeing like different approaches. Um, 
that make it curious. And when you really, when you have to make this pull request, do you have to sit through and think about how do I write a test and run it locally? What did they think about when they created this test framework in terms of test cases, expanding them? So even just like reading the code or attempting to doing a PR, you gain a lot of things because you're looking at someone else's code where you can either learn from mistakes where you see, oh, I wouldn't do this, or, well, this is actually quite clever. Sometimes though, when you're quite junior, it's hard for you to see really when people do clever things, unless other people point it out. But the pull request quite often can be the discussion where you say, I'm not sure if this is really needed or could we do this better? And then here is where the magic starts to happen where things that aren't commented in code suddenly become clear why they are the way they are and why we might have to decide to move things from one place to the other because there might be some overarching concern or architecture behind the way things were laid out that weren't immediately obvious. So, so yeah, it's a thing that keeps on giving. So have you ever run into, you mentioned code that seems weird on first glance. Have you run into anything that made no sense at the start, but by the end where you dove through and you had the discussion, it completely like, like it just changed the way you approach it yourself? Or is it always more of a, a middle ground somewhere between where they're at and you're at where you end up? Uh, I'd say both. Sometimes there's a discussion that is around clean code and where people have a philosophy that is very driven by, I would say, a philosophy that is a bit too optimistic, trying to cater for all the scenarios when it might not matter in reality. Um, I, for example, have met code bases where they were striving for was it 90, 95% code coverage? And you start thinking to yourself, like, what is the value in it It's if it's just a number? And because the way my code change changed the structure, because it added more lines, um, it decreased the ratio. And there were some lines that couldn't really be tested or there was no value in testing, really. because They were purely translation layers. And it's a bit like testing business logic, where I think does it what you tell it to do, but how much more can you test it really? It's sometimes good to have that there as a test, but in terms of um, the person that then requested me adding more things just to get the code coverage up, I felt like, well, it's just trying to comply with our standards or philosophies. Um, and that's okay, there's a level of respect because you're not going to carry on the maintenance if something later comes up, a regression, then the person that is maintaining it is kind of on it for the on it. So you might still bounce it back, say, oh, you did this feature, can you help me? But it reinforces this thinking around, well, if we merge it, it's going to be on you because you approved it. And quite often when I'm doing um, workshops with clients around like DevOps processes, and then we go through the workflow or we make a pull request, someone approves it and they go, oh, can you please approve this pull request? And I say, no, please not think about reviewing a pull request because it's the end goal to get there. But if this is not the right thing to do, then we don't want to approve because this is where the value is in the process. It's so both parties understand why is the change needed 
is the change in a good shape? Um, and this is really the value, and they are deciding, is it the right time for it? I've had pull requests um, where, after long discussions, and we even had like a full one-hour meeting with the PowerShell team, the decision was, well, we said initially we wanted it. There was even an RFC out there. But the related concerns were they said, well, actually, for the future of the language, we wouldn't want to introduce this feature because it could confuse users because there's two ways of doing things now. And it's about doing the right thing. So although the code was in good shape, um, it could have been merged in with it, um, or they made a point to call out, well, actually, now, because we will have to maintain this going forward and issues coming in. It's better, actually, if we don't go with this PR. And that's that's totally OK, because the cost is always on the maintainer. Yeah, when we've talked to the docs team and people on the PowerShell team, they reminded us, and I like to remind our audience, of that open source is a discussion first. Um, and embracing the communication that needs to happen as part of a PR is definitely going to lead to better results. Um, I know that in the past I've had like the mindset of like, oh, I'm going to submit this PR and I don't want to hear anything bad about it. No critiques, like, please let it be perfect. Um, but really the value comes in deciding what's best. It's not a good thing if people just glance at your code for half a second. Oh, it looks good. Approve the PR. Not all the time, at least. Yeah, I guess but, sometimes it works a bit different, like within a company versus open source. Because within a company, there's quite often a business case for a certain feature going in. Implicitly, that person, not like how it is in open source, would take ownership of that piece of code if something was to go wrong. And if the business case is that that feature is needed and the product owner has signed off, it's an easy to say, yeah, we'll, we'll go ahead with it. But with open source, the mindset needs to, needs to change. It's used by so many users. It naturally leads to committees, and that's why the PowerShell team has started to fan out more to include the community in their committees, where I think they've got six or eight groups now. So I'm part of the developer experience group there. Um, but I think those groups, I think, still need a bit more work. It was a good effort from them. And there's already lots of discussions happening internally in those groups. Because I think what happened is, as well, PowerShell isn't as big as .NET, but it's still relatively big. Like, if you look on GitHub, what is it? Probably around 10,000 stars. It's, it's around that sort of figure, I think. There's lots of users that submit issues that need to be managed and triaged. And this is where the community comes in. The PowerShell team is, is quite small. Um, I actually met them when I was at the summit a few years ago. Um, of course, there's some extended engineers for special areas like DSC or security. But the core team is, is around five people. Could be maybe 10, depends how you count it, whether you didn't count PMs and yeah, some of those, I guess, side teams where sometimes PowerShell get used to be its own team, then it came back. And similarly for other things, I think DSC remains as a separate team as far as I understand. But a team isn't really big to support, but PowerShell is growing more and more. And the question was, how do they really handle that? Because they still have to do lots of work. They can't spend all their day in GitHub. 
So they're slowly letting the community take on more and more of their responsibilities as well. Um, having people externally come in, reviewing pull requests. That's what it did very early on, but it was only a small set of people, I would say, five or ten, because naturally you do need a certain level of experience. Um, and they even separated it into area experts because it's just such a complex product um, in terms of making a decision whether this change impacts other areas or possible things to consider in terms of a regression. Um, and the work groups, I think, were their effort of giving the community more of a voice there. And I guess taking things a bit more offline, because GitHub is public, and it has good and bad things as part of it. So, for example, one of the very first issues, I didn't see them at the time, but later looked at it when PowerShell went open source was, I'm not sure if you've heard this story, I think Jeffrey Snover likes to tell that story a lot. Um, the maintainer of, what was it, the curl binary, which is very popular in Linux, um, opened a pull, that was an issue, and this issue kind of went viral. And the issue was all about partial shipping with curl as an alias. And now with it being open source, you couldn't use curl on Linux because it preferred to use the alias unless you called it in a very specific way rather than just directly where PowerShell does its magic to try to resolve it. And they just had to lock down the issue, really, because people started to jump on it, and then it became a media thing. Um, so I, I guess with everything being public, you have to be careful as well with the choice of the wording that you've got at times, uh, where within a company, if you know certain people and you talk to them in a certain way, you know how they react. You don't know most of the people online and you also don't know who is watching you. <laughs> so that's the other thing to keep in mind, but it's nothing to be scared of. It was always a nice community. I don't think I ever had an experience that was that bad. You'll get occasionally completely that just come in and complain and say, oh, it's just rubbish. There was always backing from the team. There was, at least not in my experience, anything that was unprofessional, I would say. So I think positively surprised by that as well, because naturally it does invite the sort of like people that, um, I don't know, stir up conversations and just like derail a conversation as well. Not really trolling, but yeah, in terms of like not being very productive and trying to actually come to a conclusion to and try to solve the problem. I know what you mean. Very inefficient, yeah. dysfunctional so, communication. Yeah, the, the community was the main reason we started this podcast in the first place. We wanted to highlight how welcoming and awesome it was, which they have not disappointed since we started. It's been it's been fantastic. But I think the, the cultivating the positive aspects while uh, silencing the negative has been a constant process within PowerShell community, and it continues to pay dividends because this is a fantastic group to be a part of. I agree. I yeah. think with, with PowerShell, the challenge is there's technical and non-technical users. Because um, there's people that write binary commandlets and they're more familiar with those like coding practices. And then there's just the coders. And the PowerShell team is very well aware as well that when they look at issues, 
actually people that raise issues, that's a very small part of their users and their customers. So many people that use PowerShell either successfully or unsuccessfully that they actually never really hear about. And they have to bear that in mind, like what pain would a certain breaking change inflict in their customers. Um, so that's a very difficult thing as well. But they're trying to address it with telemetry, um, which is, like, I think, a good and modern way of trying to get insight in what you're building. Because a big problem of software was always, are you just building for the sake of building? Or do you truly, do you truly understand the business value? But this is something that I've actually wondered myself even. Like, PowerShell is an interesting tool. It does yield a lot of business value, but it's all indirect. Without PowerShell, lots of things would take longer, would be harder. But I guess any, even at more PowerShell is... Uh, anywhere PowerShell's building careers, it's like mandatory for IT. Uh, I was interested in the telemetry just because IT people tend to be uh, very, ah. very particular about where their data goes. So uh, it's got to be a challenge to get people to sign up to say, yeah, go ahead and, and use this data. But I, I guess is there anything... I, I know, uh, like with PowerShell, with the telemetry, they're very clear. It's like, this is the data we're pulling, nothing else. And they, they tried to make a, you know, I guess, assage all concerns. But I guess, how do, you, how do you get more people to buy in for a community that is so paranoid from the outset? Oh, it's a difficult one. Like, they've done the best they can do. So, for example, if I contrast it to VS Code, I notice some purists that say, I don't use VS Code. Because actually the version that most people use is not the open source version. There's an additional, is it XML or JSON template with their own build system that layers all the things in. I think it's some of their settings management um, and, and very minor things to the common user. But there's this tool called VS Codium, which is kind of the raw build you would get if you were to build it on your own machine. So if I contrast this to PowerShell, I wouldn't say that they do something similar. So it's very close to the thing you build yourself. So for example, if I build PowerShell on my machine, apart from the binaries not being signed, it's pretty much the thing that they churn out of their build systems. Yes, the build systems are custom and you can't see them. Um, but the scripts, how to do that, they're, they're all there. There's, there's no magic that is really happening. Um, if I compared it to VS Code. So I'm not really sure where they would take it a step further, where the code is visible, they have switches to turn it off. And I guess they have to make a compromise as well. Like you're always going to win and lose some people. Um, you're going to win in terms of you've, you've got a team that's maintaining this tool and you want to get more value out of it. And are you willing to drop an amount of customers for that. And I guess it goes back to business value or maybe Microsoft thinks more about, well, it's about making customers successful. They've got the tool there to use. You don't have to use it. You're very free to make your, your choice and there's lots of different alternatives. But if you decide not to, then that's still your decision. It doesn't mean you have to use it. And I guess that's how Microsoft changed a lot with 
Sachin Nadella when he took over as a CEO, where he, he told engineers, don't worry about like how we sell it, just try and make the customer successful. And that's the philosophy that the PowerShell team is living a lot as well, similar to the .NET team. They're not thinking about how can we lock them in or make them use PowerShell more. No, the users will naturally come if we make it a great tool. And there will always be divided opinions. Um, and I'm just guessing they have to make a trade-off call here. And with things going more cloud native, this is the modern cloudy thing where nowadays there's all sorts of data being sent. If you're in Azure, you can do a firewall, but you would end up doing like really big allow lists like star.core.windows.net. I've seen that when companies try to rebuild on-prem in, in Azure and yes, you can do it, but it comes with a lot of overhead. And then what's the value you're really gaining from? And PowerShell is in the cloud nowadays. You can have it in Cloud Shell. It's, it's portable now. Um, and it can be on-premise hidden, but at least when it is in the cloud, then they can get much more telemetry than they used to be able to get and probably control it, especially if we compare that to Windows PowerShell. The chips is part of the OS and there's lots of restrictions what you can do there. So I guess the open source nature really gave them the opportunity compared to Windows. I mean, I guess even in Windows, there's a hell of a lot of telemetry. And people always complain about it and Microsoft publishes some guidance what telemetry does, but you don't see the, the source of it. So I'm still thinking they did actually all they can really do. There's, there's, I guess, a limit to how much you can do. It's just an area where you never know it's going to be a break point for someone. I was looking at a software demo recently, and they wanted to know a project that I'm working on that had me looking at that. And the, the rage I felt at that was, way out of proportion to where it was just like how is that into your business how about you giving your software and if i like it i'll buy it you don't need to know and and uh, my my boss who's not technical just let me uh foam at the mouth and rage at the very idea until it was uh till i calmed down and then he pointed out like it wasn't a big deal and he was right but at the time like what business was that of theirs to take that information from me well i think that if if you know, playing devil's advocate, so to speak, uh, for them, that information could help them craft the right solution for you and bring you more value. And and the example of telemetry, um, knowing how people and what people are using can help allow you to make data-driven decisions about how you spend your development hours on a limited team or, you know, what would be a bigger issue to change because it's widely used versus something that, oh, hey, pretty much no one uses this. Um, that would be the argument. Obviously, assuming good intent on all parties, you know, that company that asked you to sign up for that, they might sell that info super quick. You're going to get fished with a very customized email about the projects you're working on. But I, I mean, it's an overreaction, but it was my instant impulse. If it was, you know, passed a way to contact me, the company I work for in my name, that's it. Like, give me your software and go away. I mean, if you've been on the internet long enough, that data has been leveraged against you. Yeah. Like, the data that you've shared with companies in the past has been leveraged against you and sold. And, you know, it's it's unfortunate. Um, but you know what 
I'm very fortunate about today, Jordan. What's that? We were talking about PowerShell Script Analyzer, and I was thinking, I don't believe we've introduced our audience fully to what PowerShell Script Analyzer is, when you might run into it, um, how to take advantage of it in maybe your testing situations. I don't know. We like telling people to automate their testing. I mean, could we use Script Analyzer there? And guess what? We are joined with what appears to be the primary maintainer at this point in time of PowerShell Script Analyzer to help us understand what it is and how to make best use of it. So to get started, what is PowerShell Script Analyzer? I mean, I kind of mentioned, and you can kind of hear the name PowerShell Script Analyzer, but how would you describe it? So Script Analyzer by itself is, is a PowerShell module. Um, and not many people install and use the module directly, but quite often it gets kind of side-shipped, for example, in the PowerShell extension for VS Code. So whenever you're editing a PowerShell file, the PowerShell extension is working, and behind the scenes, it's analyzing it, and it uses script analyzer to analyze that script. So for example, if I would, was to have a GCI in it, it would say, oi, this is an alias for get child item. It can help me with a light bulb and say, well, replace it with something. And it's kind of the extension handling it for me, and that's what it should be. You can use it via the command line, like you can do any PowerShell module, but the primary use is guess, still in the editor in terms of getting the value. Um, they could have decided to write it in a different way, write it in TypeScript. Um, I guess why they chose for it to be a PowerShell module is probably the parsing logic, because the parser need to run PowerShell to parse a PowerShell script. Um, it's a bit of a chicken and egg situation. Um, and it's, it's quite nice, at least, Script Analyzer relies on PowerShell for doing some of the hard work, and then it applies logic to tell you about best practices. So let, let's go back to where, where you would use it. So it has rules that tell you about best practices, possible errors, possible incompatibilities. So you're responsible for all the shame squiggles that I get in my code then. I wouldn't say responsible. So <laughs> if, if, if I roll back in time, so I'm, I'm the main maintainer now together with James Truer from the PowerShell team. And probably, I don't know, 70, 80% of the pull requests have been from me in the last four years. But actually, although some people see me as Mr. Script Analyzer, the core code base, was already there when I started. So the rule around aliases already there. Like one of the most controversial rules and the rule around, oh, you haven't declared the variable that you're using, um, which yields so many false positives and is so hard to get right or get most complaints from, actually was there already. So I'm actually sitting on the shoulders of giants when we look at script analysis because a lot of hard work was done. I've added more rules to it because the framework was there. Um, there were lots of performance enhancements, especially in the formatter. That's another thing to discuss a bit later. It's actually not just complaining about stuff. It can help you format your code consistently or even have it automatically show up in this way. And sometimes it's intertwined. Like it has rules, but actually, Behind the scenes, script analyzer doesn't differentiate between a formatting and an analyzer rule, if that makes sense. 
behind the scenes, you know which rule is kind of in which camp or, or in both. And it's this defaults that different analyzer commands use. So there's the two commands invoke script analyzer that would run script analysis type rules that would exclude formatting rules that would look at white spaces and all of that. And most of them, they actually require configuration because you have to tell it, well, what is my desired formatting? Do we want the brace on the same or on the next line? And those sort of things. And there's a couple of more sophisticated rules that need more input as well. There's rules that were added a few years ago um, by Rob Holt. Um, he was at the PowerShell team at the time around getting better analysis into compatibility. So you write a script and you can, of course, test it on all the different versions of PowerShell. But what if the tool could tell you ahead of the time that this command that doesn't exist on this version of PowerShell or on Linux on a different platform? And those rules need input around where do you want your script to run? And then it can tell you more information. Um, so it's kind of like part due to that, the different rules aren't run because they need more configuration, but also the type. But yes, it's all about how can we change our code to either highlight potential, gotchas, um, improving the code, or formatting it more consistently, or sometimes even just us being lazy. I just want to write GCI and have the editor auto format it from it once I've written it. Or I could even type out get child item, but I want it correctly cased. Um, so those were some of the things that I added in the last few years. And again, there's a bit of a controversy around defaults, what the tool and the extension should do by default. And there's a ton of settings that now when I'm on a new machine, I turn on instantly because it allows me to have the correct spacing between the correct casing, replacing aliases that the extension doesn't do by default, but at least with settings, we can expose them and bring the goodness to people. And what would I always like to say as well, sometimes people get upset by, oh, why does it complain about this? I don't agree with it. And what I say to them, well, there's some things that are for sure some other things they're not so sure. So script analyzer isn't really a religion. Sometimes you have to pick a default because otherwise you just can't run any rule if you can't make any decision at all. And defaults had to be picked, but it's not a religion. It offers different religions, so to speak. So you can always change the configuration and there's probably too much configuration you can do um, it, it offers its own format for a settings file. And some of those settings had to be replicated in the VS Code extension, which actually made it quite hard at times because you can't really have an object as a VS Code setting. It doesn't really allow for that. And then sometimes we have to wrap individual settings of each rule. And I would say it's still to this day a bit of an unsolved dilemma around how can we not end up with 50 different toggles where you can manage everything, but still have an easy way of, say, turning a common set of toggles on and off. There was a proposal for similar script analyzer has a set of formatting 
how to say it, philosophies, this Allman, Struistrup, which evolve around like different praise philosophies. So similarly, there was this idea of having different philosophies for the extension that can govern that, but it never really got traction or went everywhere, but yeah. So when I press format script in VS Code, Mm-hmm. Is PowerShell Script Analyzer involved in that? Yeah, so this is running invoke formatter. And then coming back to settings, there's a default in there. And you can change, if you look at the hash table of the settings for each rule, it, it ships with a bunch of default ones um, that you can, if you do dash settings on the commandlet, you can see the built-in ones. And the VS Code extension offers overrides for each individual one to tweak the formatting, but yes, it does run script analyzer. It, it seems to me that you got a, a lot of power here because like you said, you, you pick a default based on where it has to be picked, but it's not mm-hmm. the only option. But by deciding that, those that don't have a strong preference are just going to go with the flow. It's only those that uh, have strong preferences by pushback. So you, you, you can really define a lot of uh, best practice here. From yeah. uh, This is a power grab. I'm on to you. <laughs> it's so open source. You can file your comments on the issues. So one one thing from PS Script Analyzer that I never would have picked up without it was the null doesn't go on the left side of an argument. Yeah, that rule was there when I started. Yeah, yeah. So I never even crossed my mind that it mattered. And so it, I think we ended up looking into it for a different episode as the reason where scalar versus the the you want to compare null versus each object instead of just is the object itself null, where it rarely makes a difference. What it does is a big difference. But I would still be running with with the, the wrong method of that because there's no indicator at all anywhere that I, at least on my path to getting there, that null needs to be on the right. Yeah. That was actually one of the motivators, one of the first rules that I added, because me being a C-sharp programmer, uh, the equal comparison was the equal equals. And me switching languages, I quite often wrote just the equal signs instead of dash yeah, EQ. Um, and then PowerShell actually doesn't mind about it because it just says, well, you're assigning a variable to something. And if statement has an object as a result, you just get a really unexpected behavior where you end up only going into one of the if clauses, but never into the other. So, and those things are found at only very late like what is going on and then you have to debug and then step to the line until you realize it shouldn't be doing that so it's like i have to capture this earlier like this is a silly simple mistake um and then i added a rule for it saying are you sure this is the right thing to do and there was actually a lot of conversation going on like you mentioned the speed of power grab going on but as part of that for some of them, I involve the community. Sometimes I make a Twitter poll. And with this one, I remember we had quite a lot of discussion around which cases it should complain about or not. Because some folks were saying, well, I'm writing sophisticated code that does if um, dollar my variable equals do something. And depending if it's successful or not, I go into an the if or else clause and using that kind of by design. If you know what you're doing and you understand that code, then that's fine. But that's the problem with script analyze. It's generic code. It doesn't know much around context. Sometimes you have to assume that 
this is what probably most users do. And then maybe we'll make a decision around, well, is this an error, a warning, or just informational? Um, but I remember there was lots of input in the community that went around it, depending on the circumstances that you, how your script looks like, we might flag it as an error or a warning or not at all. So there is a bit of an involvement and I guess it's an ownership on the maintainer to realize when am I make, making a decision based on what I think is the best thing? When do I need to engage the community? So try to do that at a few points and it did help, did bring some interesting results. I've sometimes made changes to it. Sometimes either is perfect PR because not everyone is always watching. So I guess that's the other thing to keep in mind is I could just be working by myself and then only once it gets shipped, people realize um, it's trying to be aware of what could happen once we ship because that's still one of the big things that I want to maybe tackle with the next version of Script Analyzer, having like a preview, preview version because there were quite a few bugs that we had to fix that only once you ship it, suddenly the next day, you get 10 issues and realize, oh my God, this was like a simple statement. And most of the code is actually quite simple. We talk about it being generic, the code is simple, but you haven't thought of this scenario. And now what happens, someone formats the code and it deletes their code. Like this is really bad. And how do you test against it? In the past, we published um, to the, there's like a preview gallery of the PS gallery. Um, we put it out there on Twitter. Didn't really get much usage because I guess people, they want to have quality. Installing something custom from a different gallery customizes their system and the version is still the same. So once you would have to install a proper version, once it gets released, they have to do a bit of tidy up. And I guess preview is the cleaner way of people understanding better what they're getting. But there's a bit more engineering that needs to happen. We had to work a lot with the Microsoft engineering teams around keeping the, the build behind the scenes still working because they've got their own build holes where this magic build happens. Although for script analyzer, really, you can produce it yourself and it's pretty much the same except for the signing. But there's a lot of internal requirements that go into it, how it has to be produced. Um, and that meant like lots of work happening. That meant there couldn't be much focus on trying to be able to publish it as a preview. But what we could get then is, because now they have a preview extension for the VS Code extension, we could make just the preview extension, use the preview version and get a bit of feedback. But this has been the biggest fear really um, with Script Analyzer releasing a new version and realizing you've done something terrible. I remember the first time we published the first one when I started being a co-maintainer, I guess. And at that point in time, there was also maintainership change on the Microsoft side. So the first pull request that I made was reviewed by the original maintainer. The data would say the bulk load uh, of the script analyzer code base. Um, I would say half of it together with another engineer. And then it got handed over to James Truer 
and I think the other engineer changed team, maybe changed company later on, I can't remember. And we had to figure out like how to get this thing working, new changes from the Microsoft side, how to build it. And then we published it. And then there were problems with signing. And we had to quickly publish a new patch version of it to rectify that. And but then for the next version, we still had hiccups where, like I mentioned, you could have fatal things like formatting, deleting some code. And now it affects everyone. Guidance is still is you should use source control because then you know what happens, not have a local script and just trust it. Because at the end of the day, it's just software. Anything can go wrong. It's, it's a good reminder. Sometimes we use software and we don't think about that actually behind the scenes, someone did some logic. And it might work flawlessly because people have evolved it over many years. But with ever-changing software, there's always the case that there is a bug. Something doesn't work as expected. But the blast can be quite big in terms of the impact for a script analyzer that sometimes you only realize once you ship. So I guess the learning there was, and it aligned with the architecture of script analyzer of having lots of settings, trying to have them behind a feature flag where I started putting things in as a non-default feature, told people about it, told them, turn it on, tell me how it works. And we actually started flipping things on and off in the VS Code extension based on the feedback we got, or sometimes I was quite prudent was saying, well, I'm quite confident there's nothing that can go wrong here. And boy, was, was I wrong. And then we just had to publish a new version of the extension with different defaults or tell people to use different settings. But I guess this, this is how we're maturing a bit more now when it changed from script analyzer settings to VS Code settings to hopefully in the future a preview and having a different train between the preview extension of VS Code as well as the GA extension of it that gets us more feedback. But this is really hard problems that you have in software, trying to get a useful set of users to test your software, to get meaningful feedback, whilst not disturbing too many. But this is where I find script analyzer interesting because Although I've worked and still work with lots of enterprises, a lot of the software is internal. Um, and the usage isn't as big. Um, it's a private set of clients, sometimes even internal. And script analyzer, we're talking, I don't even know what numbers we're talking. I, I see the numbers in the PS gallery, but that doesn't mean anything because the use of the VS Code extension might just get the same module, but I am just assuming just to pull a number of the error, 10,000 daily users. It, it probably correlates to the usage of the PowerShell extension. Yeah. That's a very uh, uh, hum humble guess of 10,000. I'm going to assume way more. I'll I'll also say that, like, think about how many CI CD pipelines just run script analyzer on the PS1 files all the time. Yeah, yeah. So this has me nervous, though, about the setting to automatically format when you save. You talk about there's the unforeseen issues. Like this has me nervous here. Should I should I be using the automatically format, or should I be saving it and then going through and running it on my own? If you have all the time in the world. <laughs> <laughs> so I would say just 
practice safe development, have, have source control, so uh, that when you make the changes, it shows you the diff, but inspect it, don't just blindly say, oh, it looks good. If you do a big reformatting of everything, it's going to be tough, but still take the time to do it. I remember one of my first other pull requests in PowerShell. I think those were one of the first ones that actually got uh, merged, was they wanted to do a bit of a tidy up around code formatting, as well as like um, fixing script analyzer warnings in their own code base. <laughs> so I was like, well, I actually wrote this dash, dash fix switch in there. How about I go in and help you? So I ran it, and some of their tests are really sophisticated because it's PowerShell inside PowerShell and sometimes inside another PowerShell. So sometimes the assumptions that would apply in a normal scripts don't apply there. And actually some of the auto fixes weren't working correctly. And I remember it was like a thousand line change and uh, I skimmed through it. It's like, yeah, looks fine. But then actually some of the PowerShell team, because they had more experience and they knew what they, they were up to, is like, if there's a regression, regression and the test doesn't catch it, they're going to be held accountable to um, in terms of the impact. And the harder thing is you don't test your tests. If I'm changing a lot of PowerShell code, which is in their test suites, then they might not even find out about it. They actually took the time, they went through it, they highlighted a couple of things. And again, it showed me the learnings. It might be tedious and might be saying, well, I trust it. Otherwise, if there's a problem, the CI pipeline will tell me it's right. But still, there were cases they were catching. So the learning for me as well was like, take the time. It might seem tedious. And you shouldn't have to do that as a human to go through such a tedious process. But it's your code base. If you value the quality, take the time to go through it. At the end of the day, it might be tedious. But how long does it take? 20 minutes? You can review a lot of lines in 20 minutes. Just be focused when you go through them so that you don't miss those things. And it's actually a huge investment um, that will pay off. So my recommendation is use source control and carefully review the changes. Don't just glance at them. When you say carefully review, now put me in your shoes for a day. You're about to carefully review some stuff for 20 minutes. Do you just go right into it? Do you have a sip of water first? Do you take a deep breath? Do you write down anything? How do you handle focusing during your work day? I would say, especially with GitHub pull request, is having enough time to complete it. Because if you have to go back and remember all the things, a day between reviews means it's completely lost, even in some sort of disturbance. So check your calendar. Make sure you've got, I don't know, half an hour set up. Make sure you're in the mindset and you don't see it as a chore. Because otherwise you're just rushing it through and it's the thing of, well, I can put an approval in there, but then there's no point. And I guess have small PRs. That's one of the things you learn as well. The smaller your PR, the better. Bigger PRs, there's the likelihood that you just don't have the time to have discussions for all the things. And that's just natural. Sometimes it's hard in software, but sometimes you have to do refactorings at once. And you don't intend to, but you end up with 500 lines being changed. Because, sorry, this thing had to move 
over or this thing didn't have implemented this feature, which only we need now. But maybe think about if there's a prereq, have a separate pull request for it. It might not, not change functionality at all, but it might enable us to make the actual change. And say we have to ever pull out and reverse the PR. That's much easier to do, much easier to assess. If there's a merge conflict in reverting the PR, much simpler to do. So it goes back to, to coding principles, where one of the principles is KISS. Keep it simple, stupid. We're all humans. We might do clever coding, but we're all a bit limited to what we think the impact really is and how it works when it runs at scale or different scenarios. One of the things that you're being told as a developer, and that's maybe what helps me as a partial developer as well, is think about your cognitive load that you can handle. There's this concept called inheritance um, in object-oriented programming languages where you can say, well, I define a base type of say, I don't know, car, and then I can inherit from that and build a Toyota. And then I can inherit from that to build a Toyota Avensis um, or other things. And they say, the maximum you should have is three. You can build complex and generic things where you might say, I might want more than three. But in your head, a human usually never can handle the complexity of more than three. If we talk about simple things like cars, you would think, I can easily handle that. And most programmers would think the same thing at the time of writing. But then say you've got a class, the class becomes bigger, does complex things that have side effects like overrides different levels. When you make the code change, you need to have the picture in your head. And naturally, you can't think of more than three things at once, really. When it comes to complex changes, you start showing them on the monitor side by side. Most people don't have more than three monitors. It's just a rule of thumb. It, it can be broken for different cases. But yeah, there's a limit to what you can do in programming. And sometimes the lesson is don't try to be too clever. It's, it's going gonna, it's gonna to hit back. That's some wise advice right there, honestly. Um, I was taking that in. When you were saying keep, you know, imagine it in your mind. Um, I, I've had those situations where I couldn't, and I, I definitely can appreciate the KISS method. <laughs> Keep it simple, stupid. And I mean, I think the, the rule of three is kind of like comedy, I think, is always about a group of threes as well. I think, uh, I, I think three is a number that's pretty universal across most platforms at this point. Yeah. I was even thinking about it the, the other day for the AirPod numbers, use a three-digit system, and they're now slowly starting to run out of um, possible combinations. I think they're 70% full. And you probably think, like, why didn't they choose more digits? And they have to do fillers now for, for example, was it Dubai, um, where they could do DUB, but that's already taken by Dublin. So you might find a lot of, like, airport shortenings, those three-letter um, acronyms to use access, and that's just replacements when someone else was already on it. So that's why it's DXB, because they couldn't DUB. So think about that next time you're in an airport and there's an X, 
it means a different airport name has been there already. And I thought to myself, why would you limit yourself to that? And probably the thinking was three letters. If you have to type something out, three letters is something you can keep in your memory easily whilst, I guess, some, doing something on the side. And probably the same thing applied there, keeping four letters in your mind is, is, is harder, I guess. Speaking of threes, we like to end with three specific questions that we ask all of our guests. Are you are you prepped for these? Are they are they go or or uh, I don't know? I, I feel like they're getting more and more difficult because Andrew Andrew likes to add some spice to his three questions. Are you ready to handle the three questions? I'm going to give it a go. I was actually like whilst we were talking, thinking about one of them, oh. and actually I think I've got a better answer now that we're talking about things. So, yeah, Gosh. You set the stage. Take it away, Jordan. All right. What is one time something went wrong while on the job, and how did you handle it, and what did you learn from it? So I was thinking of maybe talking about some of the cases where things accidentally got deleted and all of those things that we've all done. But it feels like, yeah, a story we've all done before. But actually, as we were talking about some of the releases of Script Analyzer, some of those accidents were like very simple coding ones that resulted in, for example, code being deleted, which is, is, is quite fatal. And I guess the learnings there were not just about, well, we can put it behind the feature flag and all those orchestration options to allow, I guess, for a safer way of delivering. But then we're just talking around like software management, really. But what really went into it um, in terms of like root cause. And some of it again was just pure human nature where there's a continue in the break statement, for example, and you use them for completely different purposes. And it's usually like once in a fridge loop, probably, and once maybe for try and catch. Um, and I was using the wrong one because I don't use them too often. And in my head, I just remember something else. And as a reviewer, you look at it, you think, well, the person that did the logic and thought about it thought probably that's the right thing to do. It's the other hard thing about being a reviewer, and that's where the conversation is coming in. You don't know what went through someone else's head. And the point is not to litter it with comments, because your short code should be self-explanatory but there's things that you can still never have in your code and you make it work the way you want it to. And it's hard to say, is this by design or not? So I guess the learning was for me, if I was to review a similar change, dig more into the logic, you can analyze code a lot, like script analyzer. You can analyze it to death, all sorts of edge cases. But think about the logic you're doing and why you're doing it and try to discuss that. Because that's something that fell through the cracks a little bit here. No code analysis tool here could have rescued that. At the end, it was a simple human mistake, and then no one else could spot that. But it again showed that the review process is the one that saves, saves a lot. In other reviews we had, it happened where I said, well, can you please add a test case for it? And then later, um, the same person was making another pull request. There was actually someone from the PowerShell team. And then that test that they wrote failed. And then they actually gave me good feedback, said, you know, the test you told me to write, 
it failed awesome now i'm actually getting the value out of them um and that just came out of the review discussion around are we confident enough so it again brings it back to we're all humans we do make mistakes we're in it together um you can get much more out of the review than you think you can or you don't even know what you're missing that's 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 the big learning i would say but also don't overthink it like if you can control your releases have a way to pull out or have toggles then it allows you for more of a devops way of working where you don't have to be afraid of changes so consider your environment when it started out wasn't as good we're making it better now and that's a similar thing that you can think about people talk about devops culture and all those things country could say well i i don't care much or how is it impacting me and that's actually a good example where using a devops culture and mindset in terms of developing and releasing the product can improve the product get feedback earlier fix it earlier less impact for the customer so i guess that's the learning at the time and in terms of handling well you the kit of issues you then have to think about well can I provide a workaround for them? That's the main thing to think about. Like, we can discuss something to death, but we need to have a plan B. So plan B is like, for example, a feature flag where we can tell people to turn it off. Maybe not have it on, but default if you're very um, cautious um, and it's a bit of a fear because it's maybe a new rule or something like that. But yeah, I think that those were the learnings ahead there. Awesome. Well, for our second question, uh, with your knowledge now and all you've done through your career and um, really in the past kind of 15 minutes, I feel like we've kind of started to see, or at least for me, experience the wisdom that you have of being a developer for so long. You talked a lot about seeing things in different environments, seeing the different approaches that people do uh, to solve issues. And it kind of, I found that for me, seeing that kind of thing in multiple different areas and multiple different instances really helps create a pretty wise image of how things should be done. Definitely sounds like you have that now. But reflecting back, what is one tip that you would give your younger self when kind of first getting started in IT? So that tip is actually non-technical. That, that, that's quite interesting because I was and still am quite technical and passionate. Always think about how to create the best thing. But I start talking about things like business value, because that's actually what's driving it. There's different types of development. There's development you do for fun, like those partial PRs. I'm, I'm not making money out of it. There were maybe some PRs that were quite beneficial with what I needed at the time for companies. But there's also your professional development you do as part of your job. And think about the value gain there. And it's about your career as well. Like a company will always want this and that. They will always be busy. So think about how you're growing. Like everyone talks about it, but it was never really clear what it meant in reality. Like, yeah, I'm in charge of my own career, but what does it mean? Do I tell my boss, I love PowerShell, I want to do more PowerShell? Well, that's a good start as well. But you want to climb the ladder. Maybe you want to be on different projects, see different things. Um, it's easy to get familiar and then go deeper 
And we as technical people, we like to go deep and dig and, and drill into things and then become the subject matter expert. And there's an element in tech where there's some element of people becoming a hero. And some people like that because there's a problem, oh, this guy can help us. And they quite like that social aspect, even if some of us aren't that social, but it's, I guess, that interaction or that experience that many people like. And then they end up being in a company doing lots of great stuff because they're passionate about it. Um, they're maybe the area expert there, but they're not really having the hard discussions with management around what's the business value I'm adding. There's the case where have developers focus on the things they're good at and not have them interrupt, do micromanagement or all those things that, that we don't like. But we're doing this as a job. We are professionals. The definition of professional means you're doing something to make money out of it. It doesn't necessarily mean you're doing it good. You could be doing it badly. But think about this aspect again. You're doing it to make a living out of it. Can you make a better living out of it? You could work fewer hours, for example. Um, or think about your career, because that's one of the things that probably early on you don't think about about enough because people tell you, well, you start your job, you learn the things you first have to learn and follow other people. And don't think that you can or have to wait until the next person climbs the ladder and then you go into their footsteps. For me, I was a bit in this mindset because I studied physics and I always liked programming, always was good at it. But naturally I had struggles initially because I was always competing with software engineers that knew about design patterns. They knew when you when they wrote the code, this is how it looks like in assembly code. And I'm like, I don't even understand assembly code. I'm just good at logic and keeping things simple and solving problems, which I guess the physics degree enabled, but I had to catch up on a lot of things in my first year. And think about your self-value. There's actually more to it than you think there is knock on doors early because the way companies work as well is first time will always be a no it's like they will be dangling the carrot in front of you saying oh in order to get there you have to do this so don't be too afraid of talking about things that i think nowadays they're becoming better people are being a bit more open especially with cost of living crisis nowadays people are like sharing for example their salaries have the conversation with your co-workers and don't treat, treat it like a taboo. You're, doing there, you're there to do a job as well. So let's talk about it. It's not something we shouldn't talk about it because it's, it's not prostitution, it's nothing shady. So why are we not talking about this more? And I guess many companies kind of do it by design. They try to prevent people from talking too much to each other. Because humans can be envious and they try to avo avoid that. And so they put things into place. Interesting. So business development, learning to vouch for yourself. And I think that uh, if you were to look at our previous episode title, um, we talked, we learned a phrase called a shy baron gets knelt, which means um, like a child who doesn't speak up doesn't get fed or something like that. Uh, mm. uh, am I butchering it, Jordan? But yeah. Uh, I think we're in the, we're in the ballpark. Yeah, we're on <laughs> close enough. Um, but yeah, it's very important. And generally in systems, 
it's reliant upon each part of the system to vouch for themselves. And having those business conversations, especially when you're um, creating so much value for a company, is, is definitely in your best interest. I would say like a similar saying is like the, the squeakiest oil, the squeakiest cock gets the most oil. Mm-hmm. And that happens a lot with promotions, like the people that mingle with management, explain them the value. You might add a lot of value, but management might not really realize the value you're adding. So developers are quite often bothered by it because they just, they love code, they love doing that. They don't want to think about that at other aspect too much but it's something that can be a big multiplier as well and, and an enabler to have those discussions rather than turn up to discussion and say, well, actually I'm sure I have to think about how this impacted the customer. I just know this is great and the software runs faster, but there needs to be more to it. And it can be sometimes tedious and not the most thing we like, but a job will always have parts we don't like. So it's a thing of as well with software. We're quite often in this shell or this small dream world. So we can code anything we like. We, we can create our own fantasy world, but actually sometimes we have to do things we don't like, and that's part of it. But it, it can help your career open doors early, have those discussions around, take on more responsibilities. and Because this is how you grow as well in a non-technical way, I would say. We talked about telemetry earlier. I guess it's our responsibility to be our own telemetry of proving the value we bring to the powers that be who are responsible for the financial gears. Yeah. Well, but and awesome stuff. Well, that is underestimated quite often management struggles as well, justifying why does this team need five people? Couldn't we do it with three or four people? And then if you give that feedback to your product owner or product manager, that actually helps them and the product and as well justifying um, your existence and continued investment. Yeah, and assuming that you're working in a place where everyone has good intent and all that kind of thing, usually the more information and data that people have, the better decision they can make. But if they don't have that, it's going to be hard to make decisions based around that stuff. Um, But we have our final question, um, which I'm curious to hear what you're going to say. Are you going to give us the script analyzer drop? Um, But my final question is, what are three of your favorite modules, PowerShell modules? So when you say favorite, I'm thinking like most used. Um, it's up to so, your, do what you want to do with that question. Yeah. And I guess modules I would always install on a new system. So push Git, definitely one of them. Because yeah, everything is Git-based. I use it a lot. That's why I wrote uh, lazy, what, what did I call it? Lazy push git to like defer the import to a later point in time. Because many people like myself are just annoyed by the long import time that I want to avoid. I actually did a PR many years ago, they're still open, that would improve the loading time of it by merging the code. Because the way PowerShell works is if you've got it in a single file, then individual files that can speed it up. It's not by much, something like 10%. That PR is, is actually still open. But yeah, PoshKit definitely makes makes number one. It's the one that I see because it's in the prompt. Um, the tab completion. Lots of people use like desktop or UI tools for managing Git, Git Kraken. I'm using like uh, something intermediate. So I use PowerShell on the prompt to 
use my Git tools, like I use Trot was Git, which is a bit of an older tool, but I quite like the simplistic UI. But in order to get it up, I use PowerShell. And some operations like the branching or the pushing, I still do from the command line. And the auto completion from PushGit is, is just awesome there. Then I would say PS read line, um, especially some of the recent features around the history. It just saves you so much. You've written something similar and you just had to do something like semi-manual for a test. And then you just have to change, I don't know, maybe the resource ID of your resource and don't, you don't have to look it up again. And sometimes you don't realize how often you reconstruct the same command over and over. So I think that's a big one. The third one, I, I'm not sure, like script analyzer, I use a lot, but you get it out of the box a lot nowadays. It just proves its excellence, in my opinion. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I guess it's more in terms of usage. You don't use it directly, like from the command line. I use it more in the editor. So it's a question, does it classify as a module? Because you don't use it in a PowerShell way. Uh, I'd, I'd count. I think anything that uh, widely used has got to count. Mm -hmm. All right, Chris. So, I have... Oh, yeah. go ahead. I'm sorry. So I was just going to say with the last one, I wasn't sure so it could be script analyzer or to say something that somebody might say, oh, no, but it's actually PowerShell get. It's, it's not one we like, but actually it's used so much. I've tweaked code quite a lot around it in terms of bootstrapping it. I know there's better bootstrap modules out there, but sometimes you just have to use the vanilla tools. Even if it's not the best thing in there, it actually gets the job done. Um, so it, it's kind of part of my list as well. I didn't see that coming. A little <laughs> twist there. Curve, curveball on us. Now it is time for, and this is a this is a big segment. Uh, through through the generations, there have been orders that have stood apart that have moved forward human progress. You got Pericles, Demosthenes, Churchill. I would submit that the newest entry to that list is Andrew Plaw, and I have little doubt that today's shill is going to bring forth the second golden age of elo eloquence to the world. Uh, so with my great pleasure to introduce for today's shill, Andrew Plaw. Thank you, thank you. Uh, we need that audience clap button <laughs> right now. <laughs> um, yeah, wow, quite the introduction. Thank you. Um, I would definitely put myself up there as well. Uh, but thank you to the Prince of Positivity, Mr. Jordan Hammond. Um, thank you to our listeners for this awesome opportunity to teach you about PowerShell Script Analyzer and interact with the community. If you enjoyed what you've heard today, and if you're still here, because it's been quite a while, we've had a great conversation, go ahead and leave us a five-star review on your podcast platform of choice. Now, you want to take things to the next level, take this to the YouTubes, hit the like button, leave us a nice little comment, say what's up, that'd be awesome. If you have feedback, you can reach out to us at PowerShell at PDQ.com, or we're on Twitter at PowerShell Pod. Um, follow us to keep track of new episodes and all kinds of other stuff. Um, thank you so much, Chris, for joining us. It's been a pleasure. Um, I've been a friend of yours for quite a while, so it's really awesome to be able to get you on the show and introduce our audience to something that is so widely used and responsible for um, fixing so many scripts out there in the world. Oh, it was my pleasure as well. As I said, it's the first time me being on a podcast as well. 
completely different experience. But I quite enjoyed it. And if you look at the time, it's one and a half hours. So I guess time flies. Yeah, so, a good yeah, conversation makes everything go smooth. Right, well, thank you. You're welcome. Thanks for listening to the PowerShell Podcast with your hosts, Jordan Hammond and Andrew Plaw. My head is about to explode. The PowerShell Podcast is a production of BDQ.com.